previously on Beta. That was a good one. What was a good... Oh! (laughs) Stop the short bus. I want to get off. Thumbs down. It was okay. You know, a lot of people don't understand the enormous success of Mili Vanilli. And neither do we. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, film critic Matt Singer tells us how Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert changed the way we think and talk about movies. They brought legitimate honesty, authenticity, and this air of drama that you didn't know what they were going to say, and maybe they would get into a huge shouting match. Also, writer Rob Harvilla joins us to discuss his multimedia project, 60 songs that explain the 90s, including Tannenball by The Breeders. Kim Deal's voice is just the greatest musical instrument ever invented, in my opinion. There's just this quality that it has that's so playful and so sinister. But first, Jeff Daniels. Jeff is an actor, musician, and playwright. He's appeared in more than 70 films, including Speed, Something Wild, and of course, Dumb and Dumber, along with my fellow Canadian, Jim Carrey. He also had the starring role of Will McAvoy in Aaron Sorkin's political drama, The Newsroom. Jeff is equally at home playing dramatic and comical roles. And home for Jeff these days is Chelsea, Michigan. Jeff is combining his many talents for his audible audio memoir, Alive and Well Enough. His agent called him up a few years ago and told him that he was the only actor who didn't have a podcast. And Jeff said, that's a problem? He told his agent that the only way he was going to do this was if he didn't have to call up friends he'd worked with and beg them to be on the podcast. So Jeff collaborated with his son, musician Ben Daniels, to create his entertaining and inventive audio memoir. It's the perfect platform for me. I get to do everything that I do. Act, write, perform songs, gig, make up stuff, entertain people. And and that it became this kind of one-man musical, this audio adventure that included how I got started and what acting is for me, what songwriting is to me. And it just became this grab bag of everything I do, I can throw into it. And I'm thrilled that people are responding to it. You founded the Purple Rose Theater Company in your hometown of Chelsea, Michigan in 1991. Why did you want to create your own theater company? My f- uh, wife and I had moved back to Michigan. Uh, we, I was in New York for 10 years. The movies had started to happen. And we could kind of live anywhere. It, it's not like it is now, but it it was, I knew that I, I might be able to pull this living in the Midwest and still being in the movie business thing off. And so in 86, we moved back there. But after a few years, creatively, I was kind of going to sleep. And so I remembered my days at Circle Repertory Company in New York City off Broadway, where I started. And I wanted to create my version of that which included living, breathing playwrights, walking around the green room, all rewriting a second act and actors and designers. And, and I wanted to see if I could drop a professional theater company that, that I envisioned 
acting with kind of a medium close-up film acting style on stage in front of 170 seats. See if I could create that with the people that were still around here. And 32 years later, we're still here. Yeah, congratulations. That's very impressive. And I think it's safe to say that The Purple Rose's biggest hit was a play that you wrote called Escanaba in the Moonlight. Can you tell us a bit about, about this piece? Well, that one put us on the map for sure. Uh, by the map, I mean not just theater goers, but people that had never been inside a theater before in their lives, certainly not to see a play or a professional play. I had done Dumb and Dumber, and yeah, we knew 12-year-old boys would would flock to it. You know, It would be their Citizen Kane. But <laughs> when the demographic kind of came in from like 8 to 80, it was like, well, why? how do I get those people into my theater? Theater is always viewed as elitist and, you know, uh, it's just the great unwashed never bothers to go. And in some cases, shouldn't. I mean, why bother? And I said, how do I reach them? So I came up with an idea to write a play set in the Midwest about five guys in a deer camp in the Upper Peninsula. And then I included a 10-minute flatulence joke that uh, <laughs> rivaled Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles. And we had people flocking to the theater. We had groups of 12 all wearing their hunting gear, their orange vests, and their hunting licenses pinned to their backs. I mean, it just became uh, like a little Rocky Horror Picture Show thing. Mm-hmm. You've included an excerpt from Escanaba in the Moonlight in your audiobook memoir, and I was really impressed by the way you were able to perform all three characters and make them each their own. Be the only buck you see this year, eh? Pop, you're just jealous because I kicked your butt last year. You didn't kick my butt. My 12-pointer to your little 4.4 corn? I think that's a butt kicking in anybody's book. Would you say that's a butt kicking, Ruben? That's a butt kicking. I took a 4 corn and passed up on a 20-pointer because I didn't have a clear shot. That's right. If you can't make a clean kill, don't make a kill at all. If you ain't going to pull the trigger, Pop, snap a picture. At least then you'll have something for your scrapbook. Hey! Don't you forget who you're talking to. Here we go. I shot the biggest buck anybody sitting in this room. Remnar, leave him alone, eh? Oh, when was that, Pop? November 15th, 1961. Back when bucks was thick as mosquitoes. mosquitoes. That's right. Bucks with wings. I'd like to see that, eh? As a Canadian, I have to congratulate you on your comment that if a country was a small town, they'd call it Canada. My wife, Catherine, has often described our home and native land that way as as a small town. You and your wife, Kathleen, had a very frightening experience one day when you were driving your car in Toronto. Can you tell us about that? I had been working very hard on my road rage. I was really trying to tamp that down. And I was doing real well, and I got into the city of Toronto off the ex- off the highway, and we're pulling up to a light, and uh, it's red, and then it turned green. And then uh, this man walks right in front of my car, and I slam on the brakes, and uh, he starts screaming at me, screaming at me, and, and he's now he's around to the side window, and spittle is flying out of his mouth, landing on my windshield or my window, and... I just turned to my wife and said, you know, this would be, this is a real, it's a good idea for a song. Yeah. Yeah. And you say in the the podcast, you say that this pedestrian was swearing at you in Canadian. What does that, what does swearing in Canadian sound like? 
Yeah, yeah. I thought so. That's such a great phrase. I've, I've got to start swearing in Canadian, but not in during this interview, of course. But yeah, as you mentioned, you came up this really good song out of this experience. It's called Have a Good Life and Then Die. Could you play a bit for us? Happy to. Have a good life and die. I hope it hurts so much it makes you cry. I hope it's torturous and slow. I hope you know you're gonna go have a good life and die. Many listeners know you for your role as Harry Dunn in Dumb and Dumber. It's a classic character. You do this great segment on the podcast called Snack Time with Harry Dunn. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, I knew I had to get Dumb and Dumber in there and, and attract those fans, you know, because there, there are a lot of them. So I needed to get that into the podcast somehow. And I came up with the idea that Harry Dunn from Dumb and Dumber would have his own interview show. And he was going to call it Snack Time with Harry Dunn, where <laughs> Harry this week is going to be interviewing the actor who played him in the movie, Jeff Daniels. So, you're the actor who played me in the movie Dumb and Dumber. That's right. Great. Let's let our listeners get to know you. Where are you from? Michigan. What state is that in? Michigan is a state. Is it near Detroit? Uh, no, D Detroit is a city in the state of Michigan. It's a really. When did that happen? It's it's really fun to listen to, especially you you interviewing Harry. It's really cool. You played news anchor Will McAvoy in Aaron Sorkin's HBO series The Newsroom, and you had the opportunity to deliver an incredible speech that Aaron wrote. How did you prepare yourself to deliver the speech? Well, it and initially the the speech that McAvoy gave at Northwestern. And the start of the first episode was not in the pilot script. It wasn't huh. in the script. It was referred to as something that had happened. And about 10 days before we started shooting the pilot, Aaron came to me and he said, we need to see what happened at Northwestern. You're going to get a speech in a couple days. And I said, okay. And two days later, there it was. And he handed me this speech. And at the time, I think I was about 35 years into my career. And he goes, do you think you can learn this in time for shooting? And I, I remember thinking to myself, I've been waiting 35 years for a writer like this to hand me a speech like that. You just hit it. You, you, you memorize it and get it into your head as fast as you can. And then you rep it like, like a football team would rep the same plays every single day, rep, 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 so that it's so second nature to you. It comes to you as easily as singing the lyrics to Happy Birthday. It's got to be that ingrained. And the only way to do that is repping it. And so for 10 days, that's what I did. And it was a big deal because we didn't have Newsroom. Newsroom was not a show. They were just going to shoot a pilot and then HBO would decide. And it hinged on that speech, I think, because it was in the first 10 minutes of the first episode when America is sitting there with the remote, remote in their hand going, no, nope, I don't think so. And they're off to something else. So we had to grab them. And that speech was meant to grab them. Mm -hmm. 
And knowing all that, it's the ninth inning, the bases are loaded, and you got to hit a home run. You've got to hit a home run. And yeah. so I just, I hit it. And we had a show after that. Is, there is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? And if I recall correctly, you nailed it in one take. And it's a fairly long speech, isn't it? About five or six minutes? Oh, yeah, I nailed it. Sorkin was beside himself. He was thrilled. I was thrilled. We were all thrilled. And it's a great speech. It's an Aaron Sorkin speech. So, I mean, if you've done the work on it, you get to ride that like secretariat. Bang. And then they say cut. And I looked over at Video Village and they're all crying, partly because we knew we had a show. And yeah. then Aaron came over and he said, you're pitching a no-hitter, I'm not going to talk to you, and walked away. Wow. In 2021, you returned to Broadway to reprise your role as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, and you were kind enough to, in your podcast to take us back to that final performance. Can you tell us about the final performance? Yeah, I had done it for a year, uh, and it was certainly a pinnacle of a long career. It certainly felt like that as I was doing it went off and COVID happened. And then coming out of COVID, they wanted to help bring Broadway back. And, and I kind of wanted not another shot at it, but just, just to see if what I had missed. So I agreed to come back for three months and, uh, with Celia Keenan Bolger, who, who played scout, the two of us came back. It was good. It was good until Omicron, Omicron hit in December, that virus. And, I mean, we were at cast members my last week, we were dry. They were dropping like flies from COVID and, you know, I test negative and I get to go on, but we got to that last performance and, uh, I wanted to say something because for me, it really felt like the end of, uh, Broadway and all of that. I've got the purple rose theater here in Michigan and that's my focus theatrically. And it just, I just had a sense that this was goodbye. So I started in and did the speech and thanked Celia for agreeing to come back. And then I may, I was able to get the audio and was able to start the speech, you know, on the podcast and then blend it in with just this one camera audio from the back of the orchestra section at the Schubert theater. And you hear me giving the speech with the audience. It's a great way to end the first episode. My hope is that, uh, uh, well, it's just like the judge says, you know, it's time. And so, but my hope is that one day we'll, we will all realize that there's only one race and that's the human race. Uh, I'll leave you with this. And I, I, I mean, no disrespect to those involved. Up in heaven, God walks up to Gregory Peck and says, I got good news and bad news. <laughs>
God says the good news is they're doing a remake of To Kill a Mockingbird, but don't worry, it's just a play. <laughs> and Peck said, what's the bad news? And God said, Atticus Finch is going to be played by one of the co-stars of Dumb and Dumb. <laughs> And then God said, but don't worry, it'll close in a week. It's a great speech. And that, that was great that you tracked down the original audio because it's, it's, it's a great speech. Jeff Daniels, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Alive and Well Enough. It's a fascinating audio memoir filled with a lot of excellent episodic excursions. Appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. Jeff Daniels is an actor, musician, and playwright. He stopped by to talk about his audio memoir, Alive and Well Enough. Find out more about Jeff and his audio memoir at wpr.org slash beta. And certainly if it was up to them, they would not have worked with each other, for sure. It, it, it really comes down to the fact that the show was not their idea. They were sort of brought in to host it. Coming up, film critic Matt Singer joins us to talk about how Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert reinvented film criticism. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. These days, if we want to find out if a movie is worth seeing, we have a multiplex of choices to search on the internet. There's Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, and my personal favorite, Metacritic. But back in the 70s, it wasn't so easy. You basically had to rely on the opinion of your local newspaper's movie critic. Until two rival Chicago critics, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, teamed up to create a groundbreaking syndicated TV show that would change how we discovered movies. If you could stay up late enough, you would stumble across Siskel and Ebert and hear them weigh the ins and outs of all the new releases. Their signature thumbs up or down rating system influenced millions of moviegoers and more than a few filmmakers. Award-winning editor and film critic Matt Singer has set out to capture the lasting legacy of both men and their show. He is the author of Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Singer shares the incredible story of how these two tastemakers became pop culture and critical icons themselves, and why it all sprung from their incredibly fierce crosstown rivalry. They started reviewing movies for their respective newspapers in the late 1960s. I believe Ebert was 67 and, and Siskel was 69. So between 69 and 75, when the first shows started airing, that's like six years-ish. And they had, you know, an epic rivalry through that time, I would say. All sort of, maybe not long distance, but sort of like when you see someone you don't like across the room at a dinner party and you just glare at them, that sort of energy. Um, Roger would talk about how, you know, they would be attending all the same press screenings in Chicago and they would see each other at, at functions, events, and they would just not, they would look at each other and they would not talk to each other. If they were waiting for an elevator together, they would stand awkwardly in silence because they both knew and felt at least that their jobs were to beat the other guy in print write the best reviews and get the, the best access and interviews with stars and directors and all of that when the opportunity to do 
the very first show arose in 1975 at uh, the PBS station in Chicago. It really comes down to the fact that the show was not their idea. They were sort of brought in to host it and kind of paired together. And so, you know, it was really just kind of uh, the smart sense of the people doing that, that we wound up with the great team that became known as Siskel and Ebert. How did the pilot for their show go? Badly. It went very badly uh, in almost every way. If you are a fan of the show like I am and grew up watching it sort of in the early 90s uh, through the end of the series, you, you might be astonished by how how, bad, how badly it went given how good they became as this wonderful, charismatic, funny, insightful, on-screen duo. We're really rough on the films that we, we like and the films that... Uh, we don't really expect anything from We're a little bit easy on We shouldn't allow it to be lost in our discussion that we do think it's a good film, basically. Yeah, and one worth seeing. It's playing uh, right now, I guess, at the Esquire Theater, and it's going to be there for a long time. It's going to be a very popular film. They're not very good. They don't have any chemistry on camera. Apparently, off camera, the, the combustible energy was always there. But bringing that on camera was the thing they struggled with initially. You know, they're sort of sitting in a balcony, but it, it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't have the same, the same juice. It, it's, it is kind of an, a fascinating document, but it is not a success. Thea Flum played a valuable behind-the-scenes role in getting Siskel and Ebert ready for their close-ups. What did she do to make Gene and Roger ready for primetime? Well, they always credited her as sort of, you know, she was not the creator of the show in the, you know, traditional TV sense. She did not work on that pilot. She was brought in after the pilot when they decided to make more episodes, but they understandably wanted to kind of spruce things up a bit and try to get uh, Siskel and Ebert working a little better on camera. And they always credited her as being the one who figured out, again, how to take this off-camera whatever you want to call it, competition, rivalry, animosity, and figure out a way to turn that into something that worked on camera. And, um, you know, she really w worked with them. I mean, they would go to her house on weekends and work on their scripts because they were both very good writers, but they were writing for print and writing for newspapers. And it is very different writing a print review versus writing a, a TV film review. In the early 80s, Sneak Previews was a big success. It was airing on hundreds of PBS stations across America. And Siskel and Ebert even started making rounds on the talk show circuit, including a memorable appearance on an episode of Late Show with David Letterman. What happened? So what happened was, yeah, they the, the, the show began to do pretty well on PBS. And that was when they, yeah, they started becoming really full-blown TV stars. They they were, you know, in their heyday, they were as famous as a lot of the people in the movies they were reviewing, for sure. They were essentially kind of set up by producers who were people who were doing the pre-interviews, getting them ready for this appearance. And they were both told to tell this very specific, be prepared to tell this specific story, a funny anecdote about them jointly interviewing Jack Lemmon. And when Letterman kind of prompts it, because they both want to tell the story, neither will let the other tell it. And it becomes this huge, genuine shouting match. They are really angry and annoyed and frustrated. I'm the butt of the story, and yes. it's always funnier if the guy 
tells the story that, that is the butt of it rather than the other guy telling it on the first guy. And besides, you can't tell good jokes. I can go tell ahead, real slap quick. him. Slap him, Roger. No, no. Why don't we let the audience decide? Just go ahead and whack him across. Let the audience decide. Let the audience decide. Let the audience decide. Okay. And I'll ask the audience which joke was funnier, the box of chocolates jokes or the hanging up and down by the ankle. I'd like to make my statement now. Okay. Girls, girls, please chill down. Anybody else on the planet would have eventually said, look, you tell, okay, you tell the story. Okay, you fine, you tell it. And maybe would have tried to chime in somewhere. But because of who they were and this hyper-competitive relationship they always had, no matter how they felt about each other, and they did start to like and even love each other through the years, they always were competitive. You know, and afterwards, they were a little embarrassed about it, supposedly, as, as Roger later told the story in an article he wrote. Especially, you know, they felt bad because they had, you know, gone off on each other on TV. And um, as they were leaving the Ed Sullivan Theater, a producer on the show said to them, that was a great segment. That was great TV. And that kind of summed it up. It's like, yes, they they would yell at each other and scream, but it was great television because especially on a talk show where everyone's nice, everyone's happy everyone's move, new movie is the best movie they've ever made. Let's go to the clip. Thanks for being here. It's so great. They brought legitimate honesty, authenticity, and this air of drama that you didn't know what they were going to say. And maybe they would get into a huge shouting match, which, I mean, the talk shows when someone else is on, they can be fun and pleasant and amusing and charming and, and enjoyable, but they don't always have like drama that, they very consistently brought to those kind of shows because they always did them together and they uh, they had there's lots of examples of them fighting like that. So I'm a huge fan of Siskel and Ebert in the show, but I mean, some of those clips from Late Night are some of my favorite things that they did together. Mm-hmm, very well said. It was always entertaining when Gene and Roger had very different opinions about a film that they were reviewing. Is there one film fight that stands out most to you? You know, I... I like there's there's sort of different kinds of of fights. You know, it's like you watch, as I did for the book, you watch hundreds of episodes. You start to see that um, they had different sorts of fights about different sorts of things. And uh, amusingly, they could fight about a movie they theoretically agreed about. They could give a movie two thumbs up and spend the entire review fighting about why it was good, why they liked it. They would see totally different things in the film which was another, I think, huge factor in their success, is that you really were getting two different points of view from two guys who had very different ways of looking at and thinking about movies. If they agreed about everything and they saw every movie the exact same way, it would have been a pretty boring show because every movie would have been, yeah, this is good. I agree. Okay, next movie. Um, The magic of the show was that they often did not. And even when they agreed on a kind of final judgment level, they often disagreed about why. And uh, there's one example of a, of a movie they both gave thumbs down to that I, I find very amusing. I also thought this movie was over about 10 minutes before it finally ended. I can't recommend it, but I probably ought to say that younger children might find it entertaining. Dim-witted younger children. Oh, younger no, don't children. say that. Yes, Jim. I want to no, be, no. be the at cruel a certain one. Age, at a certain age, younger children are just younger children. No, at a, you don't have to insult their intelligence. No, no, at a younger age, certain kids will sit there if their parents take them to a, uh, a brainless piece of entertainment. This is not quality, and I don't want you suggesting that people might like it. I think that they, you know, I That was not uncommon, that Gene would be like, a good movie is a good movie is a good movie, and this kid's movie is not a good movie, thumbs down. And Roger might look at it and say, well, 
these things are relative. And relative to the standards of children's entertainment, a uh, thumbs up. Or perhaps I'll give it a thumbs down, but I will tell you that I do think that it works on the level that a kid might enjoy it. And they would, and then they would fight about that, where they're not even really arguing about the specific movie. They've used this movie as a jumping off point to a kind of a higher level discussion of what makes a movie good? What makes a movie bad? How do we determine that? Is it good if it's if it appeals to every audience, or is it good if it appeals to its target audience? You've said that you admire the work of both Siskel and Ebert. Whose work do you admire more? Okay, that's not fair. That What do you mean now, it isn't fair? Well, because, like, you know, you can't... I mean, I, I will say that, you know, that because Gene passed away in 1999, you know, and uh, so young, that from that period until, you know, the end of Ebert's life, I really became like a really hardcore Roger Ebert fan. And that was the period where I really discovered, you know, not just the TV side of things, but his writing. But I will say that going back and watching the show, it really made me appreciate how good both Gene and Roger were. And I really, you know, like some people ask me like, well, who was your favorite when you were watching the show as a kid? Did you, were you a, a Roger guy and an, a, or a Gene guy? And I never really had a favorite. And I think to me, that's part of the, the the magic trick of the show is that to me, they always felt evenly matched. And I sometimes agreed with one and sometimes agreed with the other, but that I loved seeing them talk, listening to them. I will say about Gene, the thing that I, I really tr uh, genuinely admire about him, especially as a, as a film critic and speaking from experience, is like the degree to which he prided himself and really was honest about his opinions, you know, no matter what, is I think a very valuable trait in a critic, you know, that if it didn't matter if every other critic on the planet was saying Apocalypse Now was a masterpiece. If he didn't think it was, and he didn't, he was going to say but so. The big payoff, and this is a, the ending is unfortunately there. There is a journey up the river, and we get there. Brando has nothing. The we ending didn't nothing. work for you. It worked more for me. I think that essentially the two of us are representing the two basic attitudes toward this film. Some people think the ending doesn't work, and it's just another war movie. Other people think that it transcends other war movies, it's a little better, a little more brilliant, a little more important. I'm in that camp. Okay, and I guess I'm saying to people, if they go and they wonder what the heck is the ending about, I'm with them. I wondered too. Gene would often give negative reviews to directors he would say he loved or actors that he loved. He had no problem saying, that one didn't work. This was a miss. This, you know, you'll get them next time, essentially. That sometimes is hard for some critics to do. And uh, Roger would sometimes say maybe he was honest to a fault. I don't know that it was always a good thing that he was so honest, but I think in the realm of criticism, um, I, I do think it was very much an asset, and it's one of the things I loved. Again, re going back and revisiting his reviews is that authenticity and that honesty was always there. What did Roger feel Siskel and Ebert's legacy would be? Well, I think that he, you know, Roger lived long enough to kind of see what the legacy of the show was, which was that it had an enormous influence on people like me of my generation. So I think that's a big part of the legacy is the people that it inspired. And then certainly there's movies that they championed that they helped get out into the world and find an audience, filmmakers they championed that they helped establish careers. 
And then, you know, there's lots of other ways that they influence the movie world. I mean, we could we could be here all day talking about it. There's a whole book I wrote about it. But there, I do think that 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 the show, even though there is not a Siskel and Ebert type show on the air right now, at least about movies, I think the, the it has this enormous legacy. And and maybe there's lots of other shows we can think of on television now that are not about movies, but that have that same spirit and energy of people passionately arguing about something, you know, sports, politics, whatever it is, that that model has become uh, enormously successful in other worlds, just maybe not as popular, uh, at least on television, for movie talk. Matt Singer, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. I'm sure that Roger and Gene would give your book two thumbs up without any arguing. <laughs> well, I would hope so. That's a very kind thing to say. I don't, I don't know that that's the case because they did have a tendency to argue about a lot of things, but uh, that's a lovely compliment, so thank you. And until next time, the balcony is closed. Matt Singer is the author of Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Find out more about Matt, Gene, and Roger at wpr.org beta. The reason it is such a 90s concept is that it basically did not survive the 90s, this idea of selling out. You know, it's just not a thing people agonize about at all anymore. Coming up, rock critic and podcast host Rob Harvilla joins us to talk about 60 songs that explain the 90s. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. In the time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly. Remember the music of the 1990s? Rob Harvilla certainly does. Rob has been a professional rock critic for more than 20 years. He's the host of the Ringer podcast and the now companion book called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Rob says that his book contains shrewd musical analysis, vital cultural and historical context, and whimsical personal digressions. I gotta say that Rob's whimsical personal digressions are among the many highlights of his book. But I digress. Rob serves up a smorgasbord of scintillating songs from a wide selection of genres, including grunge, hip-hop, R&B, and ska. Just like in his podcast, Rob shows how a single song could capture so much about the 90s era, whether it was salt and Peppa's takes on sex, Green Day's Selling Out, or the grunge counter-programming of The Counting Crows. As a music-obsessed teenager during the 90s, Rob says that this project is also very personal. I think I've been obsessed with music all my life. It's the way I, you know, understand the world and move through the world. And I think that's been true since I was like four years old, you know, with my parents' albums, you know, record collection, vinyl. But in the 90s, it's doubly true because I was a teenager, man. I was in high school. I was in college. All I wanted to do was grow up and write for Rolling Stone. All I did was sit in my bedroom and listen to my CDs, you know, <laughs> in terms of explaining the 90s in any sense. The only way I can even begin to do that or pretend to do that is through the songs that I listen to, you know, 400,000 times a piece. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chuck Klosterman, who gave you that nice blurb on the, the front cover of your book, um, he wrote a yeah. whole book on the 90s, and he described 
the one characteristic of the decade as the desire not to sell out. You have a whole chapter mm-hmm. on bands facing this dilemma. Which song or band do you think best represents this struggle? Probably if you're going one song, one band, that's got to be Green Day, who grew up in the Bay Area you know, as part of this fiercely independent Bay Area punk scene, you know, 924 Gilman, you know, this mythic venue that it is understood you cannot play Gilman if you're a major label. And and they signed to a major label and they are like excommunicated from Gilman. You know, they really anger people and people write all kinds of angry letters to the editor, angry reviews like magazines, Maximum Rock and Roll, who had loved them previously, just totally turn on them. And it hurts them. Green Day sells whatever Dookie sold, like 10 million, I think maybe even closer to 20 million now records, copies. But they're heartbroken at having lost the community that they started out in, that they grew up in. Sometimes I give myself the creeps. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. It all keeps setting up. I think I'm cracking up Am I just paranoid? Am I just up? And I think that's the starkest example you know, of people being so upset with the band for the crime of signing, you know, to a label that can better distribute their music. Like, I understand, you know, the dilemma there, and I understand the argument, you know, of the purity of an independent label, but it is an idea that just does not make any sense. The reason it is such a 90s concept is that it basically did not survive the 90s, this idea of selling out. You know, it's just not a thing people agonize about at all anymore. Yeah, very well said. Selling out seems quaint nowadays, but even in the 90s, it was a little bit different for hip-hop acts. How so? Hmm. You know, I've been doing the show for three years. You know, each episode is one song. And so when it comes time to write a book, like I have to radically distill, you know, 600,000 words of raw material, you know, into a, a, a coherent book. And so when I think about doing a sellout chapter, I'm trying to think about different ways to define that term. And in the case of Coolio, say, or Ice Cube, the agony that they're, it's not agony, but the struggle they're having is that suddenly they're huge in the suburbs you know suddenly they have this huge white audience you know that has no experience with south central la you know and i I think it was ice cube who said like white kids are eavesdropping on my music like it's fine if they listen to it i'm glad they enjoy it i'm certainly glad they buy it but like i'm making music for black people and white people are eavesdropping on me. And I think Coolio is the same way. Like Coolio came up in a far more independent scene in Los Angeles, but suddenly he's a household name, right? Suddenly the fantastic voyage is everywhere and everybody knows the braids, you know, and Weird Al, you know, is doing a parody of him that caused a whole kerfuffle. He's agonizing over the fact that like this isn't the audience that I sought. And he's he's honestly very concerned that like he's being viewed as a caricature, you know, and, and he has to sort of push against that. It, it, it just fascinated me the different ways that you could take that idea of selling out. Erica Badu gets your vote for the best live performer of her generation. Why? 
When I did an episode on her, that's the song I did an episode on. It's a song called Tyrone. I think it was very new when she did it. Like she put out her debut album in 1997, and then she did a live album like almost immediately afterward. And this was like, I, she was introducing this song to the audience, you know, and it's like a breakup song. It's like a diss song, you know, against the person who she's just broken up with. And all the women in the audience are screaming the entire time. Like they're so delighted and they relate to this song so thoroughly, so immediately. It's just an incredible interaction between Erica and the crowd, just this audible sense that they're connecting, you know, on such a visceral level. It's just, it's delightful. It's got to be Tyrone, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Erica was just one of several women making a big splash in the 1990s, and you make a distinction between women in rock and women <laughs> of rock. What is the difference? I, I think what, that was like, you would see women in rock yeah, well, issues of Rolling Stone or like VH1 packages, whatever, whatever. And they kept switching between women in rock and women of rock. And I was trying to I was trying to answer that question myself. Like in feels a little deeper into rock than of rock. You know what I'm saying? We're getting into the linguistic weeds here, I guess. But yeah, it's like to some degree they're interchangeable, but I do think there is a subtle difference that I'm still parsing. Like what does it mean to be a woman of rock? It means that you came from rock Mm. versus, you know, you're a woman and you, you are, this is an incursion into rock by women, right? It's whether you're coming from the inside or whether you're coming in from the outside. There, there we you go. go. Yeah, that works for me. Well done. <laughs> very well done. That was very stressful. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. You've covered so many of these artists like Dolores O'Riordan, PJ Harvey, and Tori Amos. And I really yeah. love your take on the Breeders' 1993 hit, Cannonball. Can you share your take on that? <laughs> My take is that I love that song. The killer bass line, courtesy of bassist Josephine Wiggs. The Deals sisters' audible switchblade smiles as they harmonize on the line, spitting in a wishing well. The split second of dead air right after the Deals harmonize extra sweetly on the line, the bong in this reggae song. The giddy insubordination of that silence, which packs more personality than any other band's noise. You know, I'm from Ohio, right? I'm from the Cleveland area. I live in Columbus now. The breeders are from Dayton. You know, that makes a huge difference if you're in Ohio and maybe not as big a difference if you're not. But it's it's Kim Deal's voice. The, the front person of, of the breeders. Kim Deal's voice is just the greatest musical instrument ever invented, in my opinion. There's just this quality that it has that's so playful and so sinister 
at the same time, you know, like a children's librarian, like reading you the scariest story you've ever heard in your entire life. And, you know, Cannonball was just such a blast of fresh air on the radio in 1993. You know, you're at the height of grunge. You're at the height of, you know, the Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Nexus. And I worshipped those bands and I worshipped them at great length in this book and on this show. But Cannonball, you know, was just such a noisy chaotic you know like the first 60 seconds is all like sound effects and like like the song takes forever to get going in a way that's so appealing to me it it just it it just struck me as revolutionary at the time i'm 15 or whatever and it just i cannot believe that these people live in the same state that i live i can't believe they live on the same planet as i do Hmm. You share many hilarious personal anecdotes in the book. My favorites are from your chapter on songs dealing with sex. It seems that every generation had those uncomfortable and misinterpreted (laughs) moments with pop songs. What song do you think best captures the vibe of the 90s? One of the songs I talk about is Shoop. Hey, yeah, I want to shoop, baby. Shoop. Salt and Pepper. I loved Salt and Pepper, you know, from Push It Forward. Push It was late 80s, but Salt and Pepper in the early 90s, throughout the 90s, you know, they were so frank about sexuality, but in a weirdly kind of wholesome way, right? Like the song Let's Talk About Sex is partially, you know, sexy, but it's partially like a very honest discussion you know, about gender dynamics and about love versus lust, and, you know, and it, it, it spoke to teenagers. You know, it, you think about the classic adults talking to teenagers where they, like, turn the folding chair around and, like, they sit really cool, you know, and, like, they try and connect with teenagers on their level. I feel like let's talk about sex. And the larger, you know, salt and pepper catalog, this applies to Shoop. You know, this applies to push it. You know, this applies to do you want me? I everything they did. There's there's something simultaneously so playful and flirty, but also like very serious, very honest, very earnest about the way that they talk about these things. I want to know. It's almost weirdly moving to me, you know, now that my kids are approaching teenagers, you know, and they're going on YouTube and just looking up stuff I can't even fathom, you know, I'm on the other end of this now. I remember growing up driving around with my mom, listening to pop radio, you know, and Belle Biv DeVoe's Do Me would come on and it would just be moaning noises for 30 seconds. She would just slam the car radio off, right? And I was like, oh, mom. And like, but now I understand you know, to be a parent and to have pop music, to have, you know, internet culture, whatever, talking to my kids about sex, you know, whether I know it or not, whether I like it or not. But there's just something about those songs simultaneously, like, expresses lust, but in just such a smart, such a careful way that never sounds didactic. It never sounds like a lecture. You know, there's there's something so earnest and so singular about their approach that I really admire. Mm, very well said. I was delighted that you included the Counting Crows hit, Mr. Jones, produced by T-Bone Burnett. I, I really love that song, the lyrics, and I think Adam Duritz's yeah. lead vocals are fantastic. What do you think of Mr. Jones? 
it's funny with the Counting Crows because I, I really liked Mr. Jones on the radio. And of course, I listened to it hundreds of thousands of times. And I it, his vocal delivery, and I can still see him in the video, like bouncing with that jacket. You know, it's so dorky. I always thought of that as like grunge counter programming, right? You know, like I was growing up on Alice in Chains, you know, the hard, gritty stuff, you know, where everyone was so dour. And then here comes, you know, Counting Crows, Hootie and the Blowfish, whatever. And it's nominally more cheerful, you know, more agreeable, more copacetic, but there's a darkness to the Counting Crows. And Mr. Jones is a song, you know, about wanting to be famous, you know, but knowing that that's not going to solve any of your problems. And then for some reason, that record, right, August and everything after, like I liked the hit songs, but I didn't own that CD. The first Counting Crows CD I listened to in full was the next one, Recovering the Satellites. And I fell so hard for that record. And it's a record about reckoning with being famous. But, you know, I, I talked a lot about the song A Long December. And it's one more day up in the canyon And it's one more night in Hollywood And it's been so long since I've seen the ocean I guess I should I love that song so much, and that song clearly means so much to so many people. And then I read interviews with Adam Duritz, like interviews now, you know, podcast things he does. And he's like, yeah, you know, I wrote, I forget what he says, and I don't want to paraphrase it, but he's like, I, I, it, songs used to be the only thing that mattered to me. And I thought that, you know, my personal life might be in shambles, but look at all these songs I wrote. And now that I'm older, I realize that like songs are a poor substitute for like actual personal relationships for life you know and it's just it's it's the way of saying that you know it's the people who matter you know not the things you do the things you write the art you create even if that art turns out to be adored by millions of people you know it still doesn't feel as hollow you know as just having your stuff together Rob Harvilla, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on 60 songs that explain the 90s, the book and the podcast. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and to read your book. Hey, man, thanks so much for having me on. That's very kind of you to say I'm honored. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Rob Harvilla is the author of 60 songs that explain the 90s. Find out more about Rob, his podcast and the 90s at WPR. And while you're at it, let us know what your favorite 90s songs are and why you love them. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Jeff Daniels, Matt Singer, and Rob Harvilla. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. The two gents helping me put the show together each week are Steve Gotcher and Adam Friedrich. We have no talents and we don't really fit into society. Maybe we'll be film critics. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. 
Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself!